Well, I think about that often. As stupid. Yeah. I think about that a lot with, you know, every once in a while that realization dawns on you when you're just kind of sitting around be like, oh my God, like I'm embarrassing myself by like putting myself out there. I think I feel it every day. (laughs) I'm ritualistically humiliating myself as we do this every like, you know, biweekly. But then I think like, you know, like nobody cares, dude. Like nobody cares until they do really. So like, you know. It says every once in a while we do one. I'm like, fuck. So I hope I don't sound retarded on this one because nah, whenever dude. we do poetry, that's when it hurts the most. You know? nah, dude, and I've seen this trend and this really kind of irritates me. And I see it around big podcasts like Joe Rogan and things like that. You know, people that have, you know, hundreds of millions of downloads a month type thing. God damn, I'm uh, already sweaty. But like just this obsession with kind of fact checking, this obsession with pretending everything is journalism. So like if people want to get mad at us for having for saying something that like like, dude, this is a podcast, like this is a throwaway medium. Like this is not like some informative fucking medium like this is, you know, you want to hang out and have a and like about cool niche things and like like you know hang out and talk about it like that's what podcasts are so like when people are like oh you should be fact checking somebody like rogan or whatever in real time it's like dude what the fuck do you think this is like this is not a new york times column like this is just people talking like they're gonna say some dumb shit they're gonna say some wrong shit they're gonna yeah, say but that's some because, things like idiots listen to rogan and then like well that's take that as sure, sure. But, like because you know, he's like talking to like whatever figure about right. their book or like their particular research without you know but i just mean that, like he's not pretending to be a journalist like he's not pretending yeah. to be like oh this is you come to me for accurate no like he literally says all the time i'm an idiot like <laughs> don't take advice from me like 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 it's kind of and it's this obsession with like yeah we have to be factual about it. it's like no we don't dude like we're just talking you you know this is a fucking podcast like you all can act like this is some fucking you know editorial that we went through like a series of fact checks no we didn't we're just chatting our general knowledge shit we don't know is gonna sound dumb i think we've mispronounced names that are like classic names like who gives a fuck dude nah fuck these people that want everything like Nah, dude, everybody wants to pretend that there isn't, like, this window for mistakes or shit, that everything is journalism. It's it's not, dude, nah, like, this is, that's a fake, it's false, false framing, but yeah, that's my rant on that. You see that raw doll shit? No. Well, don't look at it, dude, it's just gonna piss you off, but... I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. taking a walk with my sister and her friend we were talking about you know that really egregious one that happened at hamline oh the Um, the adjunct professor 
Yeah, we talked and about this on episode. Was yeah, it our sure episode thirty-one? I think listeners can go back uh, the Faulkner episode when that was hot. I know we're on a little bit of delay, listeners, but uh, you know, usually within the same month we talk about things. We'll put the episode out there. You know, if you want us to do it more regularly, fucking sign up. All right, <laughs> we don't have the time or money to be doing this more regularly or more frequently. All right. But we could if y'all subscribed. But yeah, what were you saying? The Hamlin. Um, yeah, I was talking to someone about it, and but um, I mean, it's the same thing that just happened. So if we do want a little update on the Hamline situation, <laughs> obviously we know that there has been um, some movement toward a lawsuit. But also, there was just an incident with McAllister, and there was, I believe, a Muslim artist. Um, Whose art was curtained off, right? Uh, yeah, well, I think they just straight up took it down. Right, yeah. Um, out of fear of, you know. Offense, yeah. Out of imagine, imagined offense, because it's not anybody saying anything. Yeah, yeah it's imagined offense. I was just offense. like, that's yeah. so sad. Like, you're just, it's a hypothetical, you're just like hurting yeah. the community that, like, you're trying to protect. But I don't know. It's a hypothetical, I, like, I, could I just, be, possibly, maybe, and therefore we have yeah. to take action. Like, it's it's a ridiculous conspiracy theorizing, and we're treating it like it's sound, rational I, mean, I think it's sad. I think especially thinking. the Hamline one is sad when you're talking about, like, an art history <clears throat> class in a 14th century piece of art that is, like, discussed as being specific, and also then having all the pressure on you to, you know, expand the canon, right? Like, and be... Right. Um, and be as diverse as possible, which I think is what this teacher was doing, you know. Would you um, see the letter that the faculty signed? Uh, when? Uh, I think it was a couple, after we released that episode, like was a couple there, weeks. Was it in defense of the teacher? Yes. Or, yeah, there yeah. was like 120-some faculty. There's always one of those. Every time one of these happens, there's always one of those. This happened yeah. to, I, it looks, I don't remember where it was. It was a New York school, maybe. It looks um, like organization. that happened to a chem yeah. professor. It looks like. Um, but this case was especially egregious. Well, yeah. And I mean, that one at NYU who got fired for being too difficult teaching organic chem. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know but, as much about him and like what his deal is. Maybe he's just like some old fucking crank. No. Like, I don't know. No. Dude, but, it was yeah. it was literally kids mad that they couldn't pass the class. Like, that's what it because always. Because they get into medical school. Yeah. That's what it always is. That's what it always is. It is angry students that will have a vendetta and they want to get vengeance. It's not justice. This is not correcting the record. It is social vengeance. That's what it is. They're taking out their anger on somebody and we're letting it happen. Like, well, that's the thing with the, the Hamline thing. It looks like fire is putting enough pressure on that school. It looks like that president's going to get ousted. Now, she's still hanging on and she's still fighting. I mean, that was... That was really bad. Yes. Like, you do not the day of, because somebody complained, come out and just say, this is, mm-hmm. ho- this is Islamophobic. And right. That's like, what I mean, because there are no adults. Like, I don't remember the language that they used, but it was language that I think does, like... It was the therapeutic language of social media. That's what it was. No, it was, this causes was me like, harm. This is traumatic this was for like me. This is, like, one of those cases of, yeah. this could, like, you know... Um, be really damaging to this person's career and like how I mean damaging it destroys it like it destroys it like there's not just damage it is over like 
Like this is but the also, problem. Like, how, we keep pretending. How does the person who sent out that campus-wide email still like have a job after even after walking back his statement? It's just like, dude, that's so not okay. Well, no, that's the who thing. Signed off on that, like. I mean, well, we yeah. keep, we keep I, pretending that that these this one side that keeps insisting we need to censor, that we need to fire people, that we need to limit people, that we need to take away rights. That's what we need to do to make things fair, right? That's the logic behind it. Like we keep pretending that they have some type of rationale behind it. We keep pretending that like they have something to offer. Like they don't. Like they just want to censor art. They just want to get back at a teacher they don't like. Like these people yeah, are not I mean, supporting me, something. They are lying. Of, it is uh, a lie. Someone who decided, who made the decision before they saw the image that they were going to complain about it. But like, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, they exactly. decided to sit there and see it. They had all the trigger warnings. Exactly. Like, I mean, this teacher did seemingly everything right. I exactly, dude. Exactly. And but like this I, is and this is it's going to keep so happening. I don't even, it's going to keep happening yeah. until an it adult stands up to me like and an says issue no. Of like, yeah, I don't know. This just sounds like. Where are the leaders? Where are the people in charge? Everyone in this situation was very immature in how they handled it. Well, and not just that. Um, You're a university. Like, again, where are the leaders? Who are the people that are going to stand up and say no to this? Because that's what we need. These people are just complaining. They're using these therapeutic language that they're repeating from social media, right? Oh, my trauma. Oh, this could possibly, maybe, might motivate some some weirdos to do something. It's like, this is incredible, uh, irrational bullshit yeah, that they're I mean, feeding this people. Is also like, it is not. They, they don't again, have a leg to stand on. It's fake. They're lying. They're making it up. They're dressing it up in this therapeutic language to make it seem like it's harmful to look at a picture or or have a book published sitting on a shelf in a bookstore like this is what it is is such an exaggeration it is hyperbolic it is unhinged exaggeration and the same thing with this road doll stuff i guess you didn't see it it just came out these no, last two days here we're recording this on february 18th listeners so when you hear this it'll be a couple weeks and it'll feel stale but it's still like Again, who's standing up for this? People are like, like the Roald Dahl stuff. Well, okay, the estate was sold to some fucking publisher, right? They are literally rewriting the books. They're rewriting the books to take out what they call, quote unquote, offensive language, right? And this is the same case. These are the same people that are saying they're harmed by looking at a picture. These are the same people that I say know, they're harmed like, by a book that... sitting, on, sitting on the shelf published, that they're harmed by it, right? It's not just that they don't like it. It's that they're harmed by it and we need to remove it, it and censor be... it. No, it can be like, offensive language that we still look back at and say, like, this was offensive and maybe, like, you know, here's how we've evolved as uh, society. Well, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's pretending. That's what we continue to do with, like, think people like Flannery O'Connor, for instance. Like, well, I mean, you know, what do you really for expect? Her too, she dude. was, I mean, yeah, but she, of course she was racist. Like, yeah. she was I a mean, white woman right. in the South. Um, during segregation, yeah. Like, during yeah, legal like segregation, it, yeah. You know, I... And I think while we can be troubled by that, we can also well, that's the, is trouble. Like, yeah, I trouble. Mean, like, they're not troubled. We can... No one is troubled by knowing this fact that America was very ra- like nobody's troubled. Like that's what I mean. It's a lie. Like they're lying about this. They're lying that reading a Flannery O'Connor book hurts them and so like it doesn't. It doesn't. It's an exaggeration. Okay. It's incredibly like... hyperbolic, and everybody needs to just stop playing along with these people. And this Roald Dahl stuff, dude, they're taking out words like fat. They're rewriting this stuff because, of course, that's offensive. It's Yeah, so Augustus Gloop like is it. no longer fat, right? They can't call him fat in Willy Wonka, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 
this is what it is, dude. Like, and we keep making excuses for it. We keep pretending that the people trying to censor art have some rational ground to stand on. They don't. They are lying. They are exaggerating. They're being incredibly unhinged and hyperbolic. They're exaggerating what it, the harms, again, quote unquote, scare quotes, harms that a published book does to people. Like, it's absurd. We're living in a circus. And, and where are the adults? Like, that's what I mean. Where are these people that know that these people, like, this is not a rational ground to stand on. This is not a way forward. This is not healing. Again, the therapeutic language that they use there. This is not healing or dealing with trauma. This is censorship of art. And I'm so tired of excuses for censorship, for removing things from publication. Like, I am so sick of this. Like, it, it's, it's reached absurd levels. And rightfully, a lot of writers are going after it right now. And again, not all of them. A lot of them are saying, oh, actually, they have a point to change all these words in Roald Dahl's masterpieces. It's like, oh, okay. Well, it just feels like very whitewashy. It well, that's what like, it is. Okay. It like, is. Let's just also, like, if he did say something that's really offensive, let's not write over it and just again, accept that it's there. And again, like, again, why it's, would it's a he... hyper to say that he wrote anything offensive is a hyper I know, exaggeration. But, like, just to play it's devil's exaggeration. advocate here, even if he did, right? But, like, you yeah. know, the same thing. The logic is sound. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Like you don't want to, I don't know. Like you don't just cover up what like. Right. Exactly. What, like what bad occurred, you know, I think. It's What's what I mean? They want to teach. The, yeah. Crazy to do that. But I guess I shouldn't say crazy either. No, it is. But, I think uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. And I think more people I mean. should say it. Like it's crazy uh, to start trying to censor this in order to save the world from racism. Like that's literally what they're doing. They're trying to save the world through censoring art like it is absurd it's illogical there is no rational ground these people are unhinged exaggerating liars and we should just yeah, start I mean, calling like, them that honestly, like that's what like, it is if you want they don't care about books supportive they don't like, care about literature the black art community like well, the that's the excuse probably do is actually just to consume more literature and art by black people instead of just pointing out who did bad um, well, that's the excuse, that's right? My feeling about it, like the excuse is I mean, we're trying to save black people from racism. That's what that's the excuse that's being well, used, yeah. and that and that it's just so. And again, if you challenge that, well, I mean, not with that. Well, that's the logic. If you break it down, that's the logic behind it. We're trying to, well, again, with fat people, they're trying to save fat people from offense or fat people from shame. It's the same logic applied, right? So if we're trying to be heroes through literature by censoring art, by rewriting things, by trying to pretend that, yes, that like, it's contradictory in terms of acknowledging the history, right? Like that's a line everybody uses where it's like almost everybody agrees, acknowledge the history. Like nobody's denying <laughs> this fucking ugly history, right? But we are denying it if we're censoring works from that time. Oh, yeah. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's illogical. I mean, and I just, these people are liars. They are, tw they are, they're, their entire job is to find moral emergencies that don't exist. They will manufacture them and they will say that a book being published is so harmful. A book sitting on the shelf for sale is so harmful. Like, again, like that, when you put it that way, if it doesn't seem ridiculous to you, then like you need to like reevaluate your situation in some way. It's so ridiculous. Like this book is not harming anybody. It's a fucking book. 
and we don't need to censor these pictures we don't need to go to the lowest common denominator and we just keep making excuses like we're trying to save black people from racism like we're trying to save fat people from being shamed or something as if fat people don't exist right as if you can't look around in the world and see fat adults fat little kids right we have to pretend they don't exist because otherwise it would be shame they would feel bad about that like again it's it's and that people keep trying to rationalize this away with arguments, but the problem is, is that the argument for censorship is not rational. It is an irrational, exaggerated, hyperbolic claim, and everyone well, again, thinks and that we can just rationalize it away. We can't rationalize it away. These people are going to keep trying to censor things as long as we let them. And why I keep asking, where are the adults? Where are the leaders? Where are the publishing houses that care about books, that care about art, that care about literature? Where are they? Because they're literally bending over backwards to do this fake illogical bullshit. And I'm just so sick of seeing it, dude. Like, I'm so sick of it. It's ruining the art. Like, it's ruining art. It's ruining books. It's ruining so much. And everybody's just like, oh, well, you know, it's a tough one. Like, no, it's just like the Hamline thing. It's not tough. It's pretty clear cut if we're doing it rationally, but we're not. Like, we keep pretending that these fucking idiots that are making things up repeating things they heard on social media have a point like they don't they just want to censor art they just want to be in charge they want to control how you can express yourself how you can do it they want to control everything like i mean i think there are some who are probably well-intentioned right like i think i think they least, tell themselves that or, but i don't think you know they are. with the case of the word fat i don't think it's that they like want to pretend that they don't exist so much as they want to change the language around it right but it, either way, um, which is still censorship, it, it doesn't typically feel very helpful because it's not. But, um, it's just censoring art and then saying we solved you know, the problem. Like, I mean, Emily Dickinson was probably an uptight bitch. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, who knows? But yeah, we, I mean, this will really be talked about. We really don't know a lot. I mean, I guess we could know more. We could read her letters, which I have not. Um still really have not read most of her at this point yeah again they're gonna come for dickinson soon too this is what i mean like it's starting with the kids literature it starts with the kids literature right this is what people oh it's children's books it doesn't matter then it comes mark twain right we have to censor the n-word out of mark twain we have to censor all this stuff because somebody hate mark twain censor the shit out of him see if i care but i mean i just like that's the thing (laughs) right like and then, that's the, and then apathy is an excuse, right? Like all of this stuff yeah. is just like, oh, we have to, we don't have to preserve our history at all. We don't have to preserve these artifacts. No, I we mean, don't have I don't to view think it's helpful. I are. don't think it's helpful. I think if you're going to show, and then Mark we have to censor Emily show Dickinson him in all of his awfulness. You know, I was Why sending not? as we were preparing for this, listeners. I was sending Sophie like pictures. There's like a few like mentions of Jews and stuff, and like some of the, and, you know the lesser known Dickinson poems, poems that were not. But we that we don't canonize, but like you know, they're in her collected complete works that we're reading here this week. And uh, dude, you think that's not coming soon? Like, you think that's not coming? Like, that's coming. Like, if we if nobody stops, if nobody is saying, hold on, that's irrational, this is ridiculous, what are you talking about? It's a book, like, no, like, as, as long as nobody's saying that, like, they're coming for everybody. There, dude, there was one edit to Raw Doll and Matilda, they took out the reference to Rudyard, uh, to Kipling. Rudyard Kipling, the British poet, right? Mm -hmm. They took out a reference to him and they inserted like Jane Austen or something garbage. Like, like, I mean, you know, whatever, Jane Austen, people like Austen. She's an important writer in the canon. I'm not a fan, but I know a lot of people like her. 
whatever. You don't have to like everything in the canon, you know? Like, it's just there as a record. Like, it's just I there. I but I've really only read that one book, which is not known to be her strongest. In fact, might be her worst. Well, they're coming for it, dude. We saw this with poetry. We saw this with Berryman, dude. Like, Berryman, it was five, six, seven years ago. Everybody is saying, oh, you're not supposed to read. Oh, we should censor it. Oh, we should take it out. And you know, like, all of this stuff, dude. Like, it's not going to stop. And that's what really irritates me about it. And listeners can bitch. Listeners can say they agree with us. I mean, we're right, so they should agree with us. But, like it's going to come like as long as people keep saying making excuses for it keep pretending that people are harmed by an image harmed by a, a metaphor in a book harmed by written words on a page as long as we pretend that that has credence it's going to get worse and this is what leads to all of it like it's absurd and part of the reason that we started this podcast i couldn't stand what i was seeing i was looking around feeling like i was fucking suffocated because everyone's saying oh this is bad you can't read that we have to censor this we have to change these like and i'm just looking around going like is anybody going to say how crazy this is like this is literally 1984 shit and of course everybody gets mad when you make that reference because it's not 1984 we're definitely not changing and rewriting books and again it's this excuse that we're trying to you know save people save people through censoring art like it is so, it is so puritan this is what the christians did this is what the spanish inquisition did this is what the puritans did this is during the witch trials like they are tried to censor people for their own good and it is so absurd I just, I, where are all the writers? Where are all the writers standing up to this? Like I saw Joyce Carol Oates doing her usual kind of like, this is insane, but nobody else, nobody else with any prominence is standing up and saying, this is insane. Stop listening to these children. It's just, I mean, I'm furious about it, obviously you can tell, but like, you know, like I said, they're coming for all of it. So I'm glad I have a copy of Dickinson before they fucking censor that shit and you can't get it anymore. Like what they're doing with the road doll shit. I think... I think I just got rid of a copy of Going Solo. <laughs> really? Oh, whatever. Yeah. Really pisses me off, I think that's the only Roald Dahl book I still owned. I think I got rid of it last summer. Really irritates the shit out of me. And because it's I so just fake. Gave, um, I just gave my copy of the collected Flannery to a friend. I was gonna say, dude, you better be careful. That's the next one, dude. They're gonna start censoring that. I mean, that one's already sort of come under fire, and I think that's pretty quieted down. At least, and I don't know. I haven't been looking at like the social media literature world lately. Yeah. It's incredible to me that anybody's taking it seriously, but of course we have PhDs taking it seriously, writing defenses of it. So we're, it's going to get worse until somebody stops it, and it looks like nobody is. So listen to this podcast, subscribe to this podcast if you uh, are concerned about this bullshit, because we don't stand for it. Fuck that. Fuck that. Fuck these goddamn Puritans, dude. I'm so sick of this Puritan bullshit described as being nice. Like, it's so... Being nice, well... Yeah. It, well, that's what it is. It's because, oh, don't... It's just We're just trying to make it better. We're just trying to be nice to one another. That's all it is. We're just asking you to, you know, censor everything to be nice. Like, fuck off, dude. It is Puritan bullshit. It is witch hunting. It is persecution. It's the same thing throughout history. If you're the ones trying to censor art, you are not the good guys, all right? Like, that's just what it is. 
it's crazy. But all right, I'll stop ranting about this. I just saw it today, and I'm like, holy fucking shit, these people, dude. Editors, publishers, stop hiring 20-somethings to censor books. Like, please, stop. You don't have to do it. You do not have to hire 20-somethings to censor Road Doll. Like, it doesn't have to be done. But we're pretending it does, again, to save the world from what, I don't know. I don't know what they're, I mean, they can't say it either. They don't know how what they're trying to save the world from. And I've had a lot of fucking coffee, and I'm roaring to go now, so... Emily Dick. M. Dick. Pulling out the dick. Get your dicks out. Pull out your dicks and listen. That's up. really like the least Emily Dickinson thing we could say, probably. <laughs> but <laughs> Emily Dick. All right, so yeah. What the fuck podcast is this, Soph? Um, this is heavy board. <sighs> Not Andrew Woodstock. And I'm admittedly a little bit bored. <laughs> and today we're doing the complete poems of Emily Dickinson. And this one's going to be, as we said earlier, listeners, we're cutting this into several parts because we both love Dickinson and we want to do it right. We don't want to squeeze this like 800 page volume of her poetry into one, you know, two hour episode. So we're going to break this up into a couple parts. We're aiming for like three or four, but we'll see how it goes, depending on how in depth we get here. Yeah, uh, I also don't want to make myself hate Dickinson by like sitting down and reading, you know, I, thousands of poems straight. Do you think that's... You won't. Yeah. You won't. I will. Uh, because I read everything eight million times and I, well, you know. I just mean like, is that even... I don't think it would be possible for me to hate Dickinson at the end of this. No, not to hate her, but like, you know. Not have the reverence. out on it. Yeah, yeah. You can get... I was getting a little burnt out. We So what we did, listeners, we have the same version of this... Um, the Thomas H. Johnson version. The title page here, sorry. So this is Back by... Back Bay Books. Yeah, Back Bay Books, Little Brown and Company imprint. Uh, and originally, I think this version came out... Um, let's see here. 1960 was the first version of this version of her work. So this is put the one put together by Johnson here. Yeah. First in 1960, copyright, yeah, the copyrights all over the place, starting well, with 1890, yeah. because obviously there were a lot of different um, publications of her work, but we can go into that in a minute when we, you know, I have some notes from the intro that we can maybe... Yeah, and the 50s, yeah, we can get discuss. into that and how they did this, um, but yeah, the 50s it were really where a lot of the kind of refinement uh, to these kind of, you know complete works of Dickinson's were happening at Harvard and other big schools. So 51 and 55 are the big ones. Uh, and then there were some that came out in the late 1800s after her death by a few editors. And, th and there is, you know, they changed some of the poems in this. And I, we have a few questions about this as we get through her work here. And we talk about, you know, how her poems were discovered because that gets into it. Um, all that good stuff. But... Yeah, so we have the same version of this. Pick up a copy again before the censors come for it. Uh, I got mine at Barnes and Nobles like a, over a decade ago. I'm yeah. sure they still sell it. I don't know if I got mine for like three or four dollars used from yeah. uh, a bookseller through a library that was selling uh, used copies. So 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can find that, listeners. So, as always, we'll link it in the description. We may also reference this Helen Bendler book that Sophie and I were referencing throughout, just called Dickinson. Uh, Helen Bendler, if you don't know, is one of the lead, was, I, I guess she's still alive, but, you know, she's very old now towards the end of her life. She's not putting out a lot of work. Uh, but she was one of the premier poetry critics of the 20th century. She was kind of Harvard's big poetry critic for the last half of the 20th century there and you know still today well, I think she's mostly you know retired uh, yeah I think she's very old now like in her 90s and and is she's gotten some heat similar to Bloom too yes um, because she defends the canon from this kind of rewriting yeah. of it and all of that and if you do that you're considered against the noble cause of censorship and rewriting history yeah she definitely also like you know, <laughs> I really like Venler. I uh, also think she like, I don't know, whatever statements um, she's made on that. She made some statement that like, talking about the 2011 crazy. Um, probably yeah, Rita Dove edited book. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, she wrote it. That was a controversial thing in 2011. She wrote this article about how she disagreed with a lot of this kind of same thing as Bloom, this kind of ever expanding canon where everything is good. Therefore, nothing is good. Right. And uh, I think she probably got she some right, some that. wrong there. And I think she also used maybe like the most like angry, crotchety kind of old lady <laughs> language that she could have. But, you know, I thought, what you going to do? Well, her, I, I, we yeah, don't you have talk a about lot semantics, of big but her arguments sound. Yeah. We don't have a lot of major ones. Um. I mean, dude, all, we've and seen this all the time. increasingly we see, you know, the thing of the poet as the critic. So that's why you'll see uh, collections of, like, you know, um, Coin of the Realm. We see uh, Carl Phillips. We see a lot of poets sort of taking that on. And it's definitely a very, I would say, not entirely the same in terms of the kind of criticism we see, but similar. It sometimes a little less in the way of classicist. Uh, work there that you would see from someone like Venler, you would see from someone even like Marjorie Perloff, who's somebody who I would say is maybe more of like an avant-garde focused uh, critic. You still have David Lehman, I guess. Is he still around? Like, I don't know. Mm, I don't he know. edits like every big fucking collection. And, and there are several others I have. I mean, I have quite a few good ones, I think, on my shelf. And we do try to do that on this podcast. So a lot of the nonfiction we do on this podcast is mostly poetic kind of theory and craft. Why do we special? Why do we do that? Not just because po- Sophie and I are specialized in poetry here, but because and we're trained, you know, formally in poetry. But like, because I always say, dude, like, not enough fiction writers are reading poetry, and like, not enough fiction writers understand poetry, and it's really hurting literature. Like, this is a huge part of literature, and people just pretend that poetry can be ignored, that it isn't the most sacred well, yeah. of crafts. And we both complained about this, how, you know, I've said it before that I had teachers in my MFA program who were specialized in fiction and did not feel comfortable discussing or judging poetry and would go to the poetry students to ask for help this if is they were it. supposed to be judging something and i was like oh that's a bad look don't admit that to me this is anic- <laughs> this is anecdotal but i was going down a rabbit hole on youtube the other day i was going down a jonathan franzen uh interview rabbit hole on youtube and i was watching a lot of the clips and videos of various interviews he's given over the last 20 years 
and there was one he gave like maybe like seven years ago, like 2015 ish, where he talked a little shit about Emily Dickinson. And I was just like, oh, my God, dude, like I respect Jonathan Franzen, but like you don't know what you're talking about. Like You don't know what you're talking about. And just because like you think you can say this because you don't understand what you're saying, like. He was saying that Dickinson was a bad writer. Those were his exact words. I don't, want to, I don't want to take him out of context with this because yeah. he was trying to make a point about how when you're forced to read a lot of her work, you notice that the rhymes are more slant rhymes and not perfect rhymes. And, and I was just like, but dude. Like, wait, no. But like, that's you what like I mean. slant rhymes. Right. Like, that, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. And I'm just like, dude, slant I get it. Slant rhymes are often better than Look, he's hard a great, rhymes. But yeah, okay. Dude, he's a great sure. fiction writer. One of the best Gen yeah. X novelists. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Like he wrote The Corrections. If listeners haven't read that, go read that book. Go buy it and read it. It is an incredible book. Uh, I sobbed for like 20 minutes after I read it. But like, dude, I'm just like, no, friends, like you don't understand what you're talking about. Just stop opining about Emily Dickinson here. Like, you know, and I get he didn't mean anything by it. You know, he was just talking about writing craft and it was just something he said. Like, I think we also give way too much weight to writers just sort of talking shit. I mean, here we are like we say, you know, yes, we are formally trained, but, you know, maybe more trained in poetry than most. But um, I will very often myself as you probably know question my own uh judgments feelings about things and you know there are a lot of times too and we'll probably talk about this but even with someone like like emily dickinson um it's sometimes it's hard to know how much uh of your appreciation comes from a place of familiarity versus whether something is uh good so like when I find myself reading it and like judging other poems as being lesser is it because I'm not as familiar with them or is it because they're actually not as strong I think and so it's you can find yourself in that yeah, yeah and you can find yourself in that place even with you know um contemporary poets you know I have this issue a lot where I'm just like sort of in the middle I'm not sure yet or if I um maybe don't like something but you know you're still sort of searching for the technical reason why in the poem or whatever the moment of the poem is that makes you respond that way to it so you know I think maybe sometimes we just give too much weight to someone saying like this is my preference this is what I think you know when really that is mostly what they're saying is if someone's saying like I don't think Emily Dickinson's a good writer or they're just saying Emily Dickinson was a bad writer you just have to remember to put the words I think in front of it Right, because yeah. we all cut that out. We all try to be more um, of an authority on it when we speak. You know, it's one of the first things that you try to teach students in like a college English class is like drop that out of every thesis statement, drop that out of every claim you make. You know, just stop putting "I feel like," "I think that," and it's something that I say a lot when we're just talking. But you know, I think we we do tend to see that and put too much uh take it too much as like uh this is you know what they believe and are immovable (laughs) on it and i think that's very rarely true well even so like this is what bloom talks about and when he talks about living with the poem or living with the 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 literature so reading and rereading and memorizing and living inside of it kind of thing. I think that's what he means by it, where he's like, 
know it so well that it like because that you start to understand deeper like you can't help but start to understand like the deeper yeah. meanings and things like that and well, and if that's you what, take the time to really live with it know it the kind of thing well yeah and that's what really um you know builds the love of a poem right like and that's what we're i'm talking about really when i'm talking about that sort of level of familiarity I mean, we do the same thing with music, right? You might initially kind of hate a song, and the more you hear it, the more it gets stuck in your head. You begin to like it. And so I just want to point out, you know, we just read 200 pages of Dickinson, which if you know, like, her poems are pretty short. Um, so, you know, you'll see at least, like, four poems per, you know, each two pages, right? So at least two poems a page. Many of these poems we have not lived with yet. Right. Many of these poems we were the just more reading. famous ones, you know, and you know. we're not. Yeah, sure. But like many, you know, that's not most of them. And many of them we just read and said yes or no or sort of thought about what we thought maybe the main themes were or looked up some of the words to make sure that we had something of a central understanding. Right. But we haven't lived with most of these poems yet. Um, so as we're discussing, it, I just want to point that out, you know. Yeah. And we'll get what to that. we say is yeah. not necessarily the end of the conversation well, or like the most I mean, or at dude. least in my in, in my world right i can only really speak for me i mean some of my notes are just like this one just says funeral shit next to it <laughs> like uh, well that's I think I dude, that on poem 53 but you know it's like and that was just a note to me to make sure i sort of had that context as i was talking about it but you know um well, I'm far off from having lived with poem 53. Well, still, but like that's it gets back to what we were talking about the very beginning when we started recording this like this obsession with everything is journalism now, right? Like as if we're doing some some like you know tell all end all thing on Emily Dickinson. It's like no, yeah, we're doing we're a deep talking. dive for ourselves, like that, like and we've and listeners that we're just doing some personal in. enrichment, right? And then you know this is not some type of like research thing this is, i mean we do it when we're curious but like we're not you know oh, well, let's find the answer like uh, like it's not like that that's what i mean they get back to this well the whole thing every side everything must be no no nah, dude no like this is just us our opinions on what no, we read yeah i think if we were reading like the selected or the the um helen venler we would probably do deeper dives and of course Helen Ventlers comes with her essays and breakdowns and you may or may not agree I think when some when you're reading someone like Ventler it's always fun to try to find if there's any place where you might disagree so really try to um, give it your best before you read her essay about the poem see if your interpretation is different and obviously she is more like <laughs> educated in dickinson and has read more of dickinson so i tend to i do tend to defer but you know yeah those it. that aren't familiar with vendler's work she has a, you know every every scholar has a few poets they're obsessed with she's obsessed with a few just like you know all the rest dickinson is one stevens yeah. you know um i think she's uh, really Tory obsessed Graham, with keats Shanahan, yeah she's really obsessed with Hopkins. keats you know there's a few everybody or has I'm their just, favorites i'm just yeah. taking those from uh, um 
one of her books about style and how it changes over time. Maybe it's yeah, like yeah. the breaking of style or something like that. I can't. Remember, She's written but... some interesting ones. I have her one about poets thinking, where it's about the diaries and kind of paired with their work at the time. That's really it's, cool. It's I'd like to read that. Um, and you know, you get speculative when it comes to that. But and she's, she's very, readable. She's very she's, readable. I think. And she's open to saying that this is a speculative assessment, but this is what the evidence I think says. You know what I mean? Like a good scholar would say is like we're speculating now, but just follow with me on the evidence here and see what you think. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because yeah. of course she's a Harvard trained, you know, scholar. All right, let me do let me do fucking uh, housekeeping before I fu- I forgot last time. Uh, yeah. And then we'll get into this book. Uh, okay, so those that don't know, we have a subscription plan. You can subscribe to full access to this podcast to receive uncensored episodes only for subscribers, bonus episodes, etc. Go to patreon.com slash heavyboard to get full access to this podcast. Uh, if you don't want to do that, can't afford that, there are other ways to support us. You can go to our YouTube channels, give us a subscribe, a like, a share on those. Either our Clips channel at Heavyboard Clips or our main channel at Heavyboard. That helps us out. You can also give us a five-star review that's another free way to support us you can go to apple spotify leave us a five-star review that helps us out helps us grow free way to support us and as always we're still looking for these kind of workshop horror stories if you've had a terrible experience in a workshop and you want to share it with us we'd love to hear from you send that to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com in excruciating detail (laughs) and we'd like to uh, have a good time with it on the podcast uh yeah that's it and uh all right so dickinson that was good housekeeping, nice and quick. All right, so where do you want to start with this, Soph? We did uh I mean, there isn't a whole lot I think we need to go over in terms of her background before we jump into the poems. Um, I would just say, you know, she is the Amherst mystery, you know. If you know anything about Dickinson, you probably know that she was holed up in her uh big house referred to as the homestead in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, she spent a little bit of time, I think, at Mount Holyoke. It's an all-women's um, college up there. Really small. Um, she, she writes a little bit about it. We see some of that in, um, in the intro here. But either way. The, and that's... that's- that's one thing I learned from this introduction is, you know, I was, I was, I've always loved Dickinson, but I've never been like a huge know everything about her type scholar or just, you know, hobbyist, whatever. But uh, maybe, yeah, I've watched a few documentaries, so I might be conflating um, information from documentaries with this intro. So forgive (laughs) that and her like, uh, you know, I, I just, when we're taught about her in school, uh, I think there's kind of this overemphasis on the later years of her life, like after her parents died and stuff. And she was kind of this hermit that locked herself in her bedroom and wouldn't leave. Like we're kind of, they, they portray which that. Which is true. Yeah, there's which is that, true. You know, from what but that's know, portrayed as like. From what I understand. But I understood that, again, this is due to my ignorance because I didn't know enough, but it was like. I understood that to be, oh, she did that her whole life. No, that was like the last 10, 20 years of her life. And like she was a normal or, you know, somewhat normal kind of going about town, normal person. from a wealthy family. Yeah, from an upper class family. and had the wealth to, you know, (laughs) Not work and, yeah. And. um, Have house servants and things like that. Yeah. So. So that was something I always forget about. Being something of a hermit in her later years. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so there's that. Do you know, let's see. I don't know if I made note of her death here. Uh, 1886, 1896. Yeah, but like a speculated Bright's disease or some shit. I don't know. Oh, right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Yeah. I mean, everybody was dying of, you know, what yeah, we consider you know. now easily I don't remember how diseases, old she but... was, is what I'm saying, but probably not that old, you know. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I learned Not that young, this... though. She was fairly old, right? Like, she was fairly old for someone at that time. The other thing I learned about this was that, you know, everyone, they, when you go to the overview in school and stuff like that, they're like, oh, she didn't publish during her lifetime or whatever, but, like, that's, that's not, not true, true either. Yeah. yeah, like, she didn't do much publishing but there were like what like six seven poems published by that yeah guy. and some anonymously um higginson is the guy I that think, she wrote i to. think there were a couple poems that maybe were published un, um anonymously and that was maybe something of a trend at the time i think that wasn't unusual to publish poems um without uh, the name yeah and, and that might have pe- been i think that might have been in like a school journal maybe at amherst or something yeah, in April uh, April fifteenth, eighteen sixty two, was when Thomas Wentworth Higginson received yep. a letter from Emily Dickinson enclosing four of her poems. And in this yep. next paragraph on page four or page six of the introduction, sorry, these fucking Roman numerals. Uh, uh, the the editor, the main author, Johnson, writes uh, the importance of the correspondence with Higginson thus initiated and continuing throughout Emily Dickinson's life cannot be exaggerated. In the first place, the four poems she initially selected reveal that in 1862, the poet was no longer a novice, but an artist whose strikingly original talent was fully developed. She enclosed Safe in Their Alabaster Chambers, that's number 216, I'll Tell You How the Sun Rose, number 318, The Nearest Dream Recedes, Unrealized, 319, and We Play at Paste, 320. What embarrassed Higginson about the poems was his inability to classify them. In 1891, he wrote an article describing this early correspondence. Quote, the impression of a wholly new and original poetic genius, he said, was as distinct on my mind at the first reading of these four poems as it is now, after 30 years of further knowledge, and with it came the problem never yet solved. What place ought to be assigned in literature to what is so remarkable, yet so elusive of criticism? Higginson's problem was compounded by the fact that during Emily Dickinson's lifetime, he was never convinced that she wrote poetry. As he phrased his opinion to a friend, her verses were, quote, remarkable, though odd, too delicate, not strong enough to be published. (laughs) Yeah, so that's straight from this introduction of this um, book. But yeah, as you know, if you know probably at least maybe safe in alabaster chambers uh depending on how familiar with the poet you are you might not know the others you might know i'll tell you how the sun rose um well i think it's interesting i think we're going to get to this as we get towards the end of this episode but the fact that it was the after she had already written these 200 and some oh you know, yeah over i mean that's 300 wild, 400 poems right? like, and then picked af- what she thought were the four best and as reading through you can and kind none of, of them tell. before two before the tell. 200 mark yeah, right. Like so she tell. had already written 216 poems before selecting these. And as we're going to get to this, listeners, but as you go through this, like reading the first 200 pages of this huge 800-page book, as far as we can tell, poems, yeah, it you can tell like there is a point in that you know 1859, 1860, 1861, and then 1862, as these poems you go through in order, 
like that's where the magic started to happen. Like yeah, right around the first there one, is when it's she like around became page 100. Yeah. Like you said, yeah. um, we see you safe in alabaster chambers. And then yeah. and from there, that's around where the poems do start to really feel what you know of as Emily Dickinson. Yeah. yeah. More like, like her, her style, her unique song style, her unique we rhythm. See, we like, really begin to see a more, I would say, um, I'm hesitant to say uniform use, but uh, more expanded use maybe of the M dash. Yeah. And you see that. Yeah. Um, we always say this. We always say this. This is why you need to read a complete works of especially older writers where you can get all their works. They're not putting out anymore. Right. And you can see it. If you're interested, you can see this growth. You can see what's happening here. Yeah, in places like, it feels a little tighter. But there are earlier ones that stand out, too. There are poems before this point um, that are that are big ones. And we'll talk about some of those, too. We probably won't get to all of them. You'll, But, you know, one of the cool things is also just seeing the progression of her obsessions over time. Um, how they sort of play on one another how you know i mean for the first i don't know how many do you see her starting to sort of play with all of the themes that i think become more realized in the later poems everything from uh you know obviously she was someone who was obsessed with the idea of what poetry is what it does and you know immortality not just as something religious but also something um tied to being a writer right? uh, yeah. maybe not the cleanest way i might have said that but it's fine yeah but it's like something going back to you know shakespeare even before that right like the yeah immortality i mean really type. really early on you know my wheel is in the dark i cannot see a spoke yet know it's dripping feet go round and <coughs> round um uh the last couple of things i the last two before we get to poems in the introduction what do we think of the grouping that is used in this because Johnson does take time to give us in a little footnote on the bottom of page uh, uh, eight in the introduction here on like the, the packets, you know, her poems were discovered after her death, sewn into these little packets, but not just sewn. There were scattered ones, but there were organized yeah. ones as well. And people have taken some liberties with that. So Johnson is trying to be completely transparent in how he's doing this and how he grouped them. I was saying, what do you think of these groupings? Whereas you can see the years, she kind of grouped them by year. And in the Vendler book, there was some more scholarship on this after this book came out where people started to use, you know, like kind of forensic evidence, like watermarks, how they line up, what order were they originally in when she put them away in that drawer type thing um, that they've tried to kind of, you know, uh, make more accurate, more what it was when she, how she intended it or something. But yeah, I don't As know. A, Just what yeah, are your thoughts? I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't revisited the um Vendler intro but I did find that I felt there was like a natural movement um yeah. from one to the next so it, I did appreciate that I I don't think between um this copy and a Vendler which again we're looking at with Vendler selected a very limited um collection where you wouldn't necessarily see the movement from one poem to the next poem or start to see um sort of how her her formulas work how her mind is working it like how she's sort of trying to flesh out the same idea across different poems i, I liked that we could see a lot of that happening close to one another but then i know like there are some poems that 
I kept thinking like this is the same sort of formula she's using for something that comes later, like the zeros taught as phosphorus. Well, like, like um or Yeah. But I just mean like you can see it here in this the grouping. So at eighteen fifty eight there were fifty one poems sewn together in a mm -hmm. packet. In eighteen fifty nine there were ninety three, eighteen sixty, sixty three, right, eighteen sixty one, right. so eighty five. Those... And then eighteen sixty two, three hundred and sixty six poems were tied together from that year. And that's the year, as we already mentioned, where you can see Dickinson became Dickinson, like the one that we know mm -hmm. today. And you can recognize her kind of style just from reading a few poems. Like, and it's kind of like, yeah, that was a very productive year for her, it looks like, and the way she kind of grouped the poems, if we're to believe that's how they're put together. Uh, and, you know, after that, it was like 140 in 1863, 64, 172. Like, this just kept being more and more, like these hundreds of poems a year. And you can see it grow. You can see it get there. But, yeah that and then the last thing i had to ask is you know what do we think of the edits put in after her death by higginson in the one hand but then her sisters and then you know the woman the women that that helped make sure she was a remembered canonized poet after her death kind of in the late 19th well, century this, early 20th in this century copy, i think the idea was was it not to try to restore them as closely as possible to their original state, right? Yeah, or the yeah, yeah. state that she intended. In this version. But I just mean, like, you know, that's something that we have to grapple with in terms of, like, you know, you have no control over this stuff once you're dead. But, like, she seems to have been... So many people were putting their fingers in there. Well, and kind she of knew. Thing well, and we know how she felt about it, right? Because we know that she saw some of her poems published or looked at by Higginson, right? And that he had changed a lot. Or that it was him, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, him and then a few others where they edited out mostly punctuation you know, changed stuff. Changed her punctuation. Um, I think the most egregious ones he changed words around to make a perfect yeah. rhyme instead of a slant rhyme and things like that. And, you know, just inconsiderate things like that. But, you know, that it's something that I think when you're talking about Dickinson's complete works, we just have to mention, you know, that it's, yeah, been, I mean, there is some bastardizing that took place that we just have to, we can never know. As non-scholars, kind of you know. I think I like, I mean, at least for me, I just sort of accept it. I, it's something that I'd be happy to, if, if I could see different versions side by side, that would be cool. We do actually get that in at least one poem here. And to, I, I want to talk about that one because I think the, the change is interesting. And I, I think actually Venmore talks about it too. But um, And I think Dickinson, in one of the documentaries I watched, um, I don't remember which one, but you know that was one of the things that some of the scholars on there talked about was you could see her really playing with poems a lot never being quite done with any one version and sometimes keeping multiple versions as though sort of leaving it to the reader or maybe um, making available different interpretations so it seems like that was something she was interested in and wasn't necessarily um, tied to having just one version of one poem, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, even I think, um, you know, dates are going to be conjecture, right, for all the poems. So, you know, they do their best. A lot of it is estimated, yeah. Uh, but um, even that, so we start really with like the first records that she had, which was 1850 with that first poem. 
And we know, yeah, um, some of the first big publications of her poems, like after she died, right? We know that Higginson published a really altered version of just a narrow selection of poems. And then that was received well. And I think it, it happened again. Um, and then finally, it was reconstructed, right? Um, by, I think, maybe her it was her sister, sister and her her. Is it her uh, sister or sister-in-law? Like I don't. Her her. She her definitely living, had a brother. The book said at the time her only living heir, which was a woman that was Dickinson was the maiden name, and she, I guess for whatever reason at that you know had the rights or something, and she put out a few volumes, and this was in the 1900s, um, you know, 20, 20 30 years after her death, after Dickinson's other death. Other people, one of whom I think it was like thought that her brother was having an affair with this woman who I think like was maybe a singer or something. And she was brought in to help, um, by maybe, I don't remember. I don't fucking remember. Y'all go watch that documentary. You can find, you can find like several documentaries about her on like canopy. If you can get a library account, do it. Highly recommend it. And, uh, I mean, the first one that I stuck out to me was number two. Maybe because it was sandwiched between these kind of long poems that aren't really her style. That oh, I've yeah. I mean, the first one taught. seems so far off from her style with like really long lines, a lot of sort of, you know, we don't see any dashes here. Maybe one, maybe two. A few, toward a few the at end. the end, yeah. But it's also like you can tell that she's kind of going over the great kind of epic tradition that poetry still was at the time. And again, this was 1850. Uh, we did our Walt Whitman episode where there's like there were things that were starting to change in terms of like the styles and stuff of poetry. But number two is the one that stood out to me because it was just this is the one that kind of right away shows her style already, what she was trying to go for and not just copy, uh, you know, the kind of epic form that poetry was. Uh, yeah, and this is a then. case where I think mostly, like, Emily Dickinson is Emily Dickinson in her poems, for the most part. Like, I mean, right. you know, maybe a step removed, but here we do see a, an address to her brother, Austin. Right? Uh, there is another sky ever serene and fair. There And there another... <laughs> There is another sky, ever serene and fair, and there is another sunshine, though in, though it be darkness there. Never mind faded forests, Austin. Never mind silent fields. So there we see um, a direct address to her brother at the very end. Prithee, my brother, into my garden come. Yeah, and we just see her little kind of rhythmic use there where we see that. I just noticed it as the first development for that for me. Yeah, and we know that she uses um, she, she uses uh, the hymn, right? Uh, maybe not until a little bit later, but that was sort of her... Uh, it, it seemed to be her big influence, right? Hymns. Yeah. Then there makes this point that, um, you know, the King James Bible, that version is the one that Dickinson would have known. Yeah. So uh, she was no doubt well versed in that as she was, you know, upper class educated woman at the time. And uh, I'm sure there was a lot of scripture reading and the hymnals. Right. 
uh, you know, there's that's music. There's a lot of music in those old hymns. Like there's a lot. I mean, they're meant to be kind of sung. You know, they're so old. That's what it still was, kind of. And you know, uh, I think you know uh, Johnny Cash has said things like, you know, he learned how to sing and dance by singing the hymns, like when he was a kid in like his poor little town with his mother and shit in church, you know, like that was everybody singing the hymns together and things. And it gives you kind of a sense of rhythm expectation kind of, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I marked number 11. What, what did you mark in this kind of first couple pages here? Um, I think I marked 12, 12. Okay. Uh, the mourns are meeker than they were. Nice. And those are both 1858 poems. Yeah. And they're both kind of, they're more condensed than those first couple. We're starting to see, again, like this stuff take place. Uh, which one did you want to talk about? 12? Uh, I mean, which one did you say you had marked? 11, the one right before it. So I imagine they were composed in sequence at some point. Um, although 12 is one that I guess was published right after her death there in 1890 for the first time. Oh, I think I also marked 10, but that might have just been for rhythm. Well, that's, that's I mean, part of why I marked before. them. I mean, like, it, just in these early ones, yeah, you see, like, she's using that ABCB rhyme structure. And th- yeah. And this is important, like, a for listeners and stuff. A lot of iambic trimeter. Like, the, you, you know, the thing with Dickinson is that she had so many unpublished stuff, so they put all of it in here. It's kind of similar with Keats. When we did Keats stuff, they put everything in the complete works of Keats. So, you know, not all of it is good. Not all of it is masterpieces, like her, her masterpieces that we get taught in school and stuff in a basic kind of English curriculum. But, like, seeing it, seeing how she developed this, like, you're not going to be a perfect, great poet right away. Like, you have to spend a few years working up to this and then kind of finding your own way like and it's clear that she did that very quickly at least by the record of the stuff that we have here in this book and just yeah when i got to these kind of 10 11 12 poems in you're starting that that is becoming very apparent to me and that's just why i started marking it do you want to read one of these or uh, talk about one of these yeah sure Um. (coughs) which one i mean i'll do 10 11 or 12 whichever one you want you know, I really struggled with 10 a little bit. I felt kind of dumb. That one's my wheel is in the dark. I cannot see a spoke, yet know its dripping feet go round and round. My foot is on the tide. <laughs> that feels very Dickinson to me. My foot is on the tide. I did see something in Vendler's that she never actually saw the ocean. Really? Because she never really left that town. But I don't know if that's speculation or not, because she was upper class. She could have traveled, you know, kind of any time to beach house or like a shore house or something for the summer, you know, like like the upper classes would do then. But I mean, they still do now. But, you know, yeah, I just in, in 1858 and the number 11 is where I saw again this kind of just like a number two. You start to see her key, like her kind of like. <sighs> You know, I say key as if it's like a, like music, but like, yeah, like you start to see just like her style with, I never told the berry gold upon the hill that lies. I saw the sun, his plunder done, crouched low to guard his prize. He stood as near as you stood here. A pace had been between. Did but a snake bisect the break. My life had forfeit been. That was a wondrous booty. I hoped was honest gained. Those were the fairest ingots that ever kissed the spade. Whether to keep the secret whether to reveal, whether as I ponder, 
kid will sudden sail. Could a shrewd advise me? We might even divide. Should a shrewd betray me? At, ooh, atropos decide. And you just see that kind of music, right? Like you just see this kind mm-hmm. of built-in rhythm that forces your reading with this. And then when we get into the M dashes here as well, kind of this kind of the rhythmic use of them. And this is all over scholarship. Anybody that's remotely interested can get into this. But like you notice that first here she's using the M dashes more in towards the end rhymes to imply the either the abrupt stop or the hold and then as we move along as we'll talk about here it starts to move into the poem like it starts to be used inside the different stanzas like internally not just on the end lines not just as like a little like it starts to pace the poem so using this kind of uh and you know you could use commas and stuff like this for this too right but like she used dashes and she's really responsible for making the m dash this I would say like kind of like a rhythmic thing into poetry like she's kind of you know the godfather of that or the godmother of that whatever you want to say um you know I would say and like these these three little poems here 10 11 12 are the ones that Sophie and I I was curious to see which ones would overlap it's interesting that they're in the same area but different poems you know do you know who kid is uh no but i guess it's clearly a name i mean it sounds like a tale right or like kind of a story about treasure (laughs) to some degree right at least on top that was a wondrous booty i hoped was honest gained those were the fairest ingots that ever kissed the spade um ingots you know blocks of metal whether to keep the secret, whether to reveal, whether as I ponder, kid will sudden sail. Well, yeah, I mean, the buried gold upon the hill. Captain uh, Kid's treasure. Mm. Mm. So maybe this is a reference. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. Well, she's using gold and the kind of, <clears throat> right, by which she means you could say literal gold and jewels, right, ingots. But I, she's talking more with like kind of the uh, the nature too, right? I never told the buried gold upon the hill that lies. I saw the sun his plunder done, crouch low to guard his prize. So we kind of see this kind of gold, but also the sun, right? Like mm-hmm. kind of same thing. And then we kind of have the ra- the nature images, right? And there is this kind of like... I do sometimes wonder, I never told the buried the buried gold or I never told of the buried gold you know like because she does drop language a lot right she does drop words um but you know on on the face of it I would read it as I never like as if she was talking to the gold that is my inclination but you know well I mean that's if we're taking it as literal gold right like yeah but yeah I just thought yeah that you're starting to see this kind of refinement come into her work and I thought that was really great yeah i mean you know, the, the next poem the morns are meeker than they were the nuts are getting brown the berry's cheek is plumper the rose is out of town um so this is this is a seasons poem right and we see a lot of this we see a lot of seasons over the next i don't know how many poems and maybe that's where i sort of started to get a little feeling a little burnt out on it um because you sort of get into the rhythm of understanding, like, okay, this is the phase she's in. She's talking about, you know, 
the changing of the seasons and right. that did make me wonder a little bit about the order of the poems because i was like oh is she just like <laughs> writing about nothing but the seasons for this period um well but and I think we that, don't know yeah. also i don't know how quickly she composed these right i mean i didn't pay as much attention to the dates i think at um, some point they they again we can only estimate because we don't know but i think you know, we're guessing educated guesses. Uh, Vendler said that at, that apparently in 1862, that one where we pointed out, she wrote, you know, 366 poems in that packet that was dated 1862. She was probably composing a poem or two a day, you know, to get that many in a year. Now, uh, you know, she didn't have to work. She was upper class. She could sit around all day staring out the window and compose poems, right? So we're envious of that. That's a great thing to have if you want to be a writer. But yeah, I, I think when you see all these poems on the season, right? The, keep in mind, she wasn't trying, and I'm talking to listeners, you know, but the, the, keep in mind, she wasn't trying to publish these. Like, so if you write a hundred poems on the seasons and there's one that's a masterpiece, right? So you're writing a hundred poems on the season to get that one that she wanted to publish, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, just good to see, like, it's just interesting to see a, a great kind of master of the craft work up to it. You know, you got you, you don't just start out as a master. You have to work up to it. You have to write a hundred poems about the changing seasons until you get that masterpiece that was like, oh yeah, that hit it on the head. You know what I mean? Like sometimes yeah. you have to write a hundred of these things. So I, and I get, and I felt that too. Like, so you said, I felt this kind of burnout because the topics are all the same. But, you know, we are reading the complete works, so these aren't, like, all the bangers. As Sophie and I were saying, uh, <clears throat> we want to we wanna read bangers. Like, Yeah, but, we're in it for the bangers, guys. I'm sorry. And it, everybody is, but, I really, you know, I mean, and there are they can't all be bangers, interesting. You know, yeah. uh, you know we'll, we'll talk about some of those. You have to write a few stinkers to get to the bangers, you know? Like, you, you got to write a few bad ones. Or not even bad, but, you know, not as I good ones. I do think ones, 10 is interesting, interesting but I want to maybe, we can come back to that one maybe. Yeah, we move um, on. I want to move Next. forward. Um, and is know, there anything? is sort of just like, I, I assume that one was about fall. No? Yeah, 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 I think so. I think that's pretty fair. Uh, I mean, we could go a little deeper. A gray scarf, the field, a scarlet gown. Yeah, it's about the fall coming, the roses out Lest of town. I should be old-fashioned, I'll put a trinket on, you know. Fall is yeah. fashion, is yeah. the one note I made. Um, yeah, fuck it. Uh, what else do you have marked? I have number 28. I have... Yeah, let me get a list. Uh, 49. Uh, what else did I do? I wrote pages for a lot of days, but of course I didn't as I was reading through this. I mostly just wrote the numbers of the poems. Um, what do you oh, have? Okay. Or what do you want to hit as we kind of move along? Because then, I, you know, I did, there were periods where I didn't mark anything for a while. Yeah, like me too. I marked 49, and then I didn't mark anything to like 150. 25 is one that I marked as, eh. <laughs> but I think I said <laughs> that one to you. That one was, she slept beneath a tree, remembered but by me. I touched her cradle mute. She recognized the foot, put on her carmine suit and see. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it reads, like Sophie said, as like a little exercise poem, yeah. right? Like it reads as if it was just a little, hmm, you know, in the moment, write it down. Kind of, and, you know, it probably and maybe was, maybe a right? little play with foot, right? And mute yeah. and cradle. And her, well, um, her usual style, music, but yeah. Right? But not like the masterpieces. But yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Uh, 28 was the one I 
<clears throat> marked right there. It's weird because we keep marking things in the same sections, but they're different poems. But yeah. I like that. Yeah, you marked like 28, that. I think. I marked... I... This is one I want to try and memorize as like a like b- try out Bloom's theory on memorizing poetry. 26 was one I enjoyed. Uh, it's all I have to bring today. This and my heart beside. This and my heart and all the fields and all the meadows wide. Maybe I marked it because it like I already knew it. <laughs> um, I feel like this is one that as I was reading, I couldn't have told you from memory that I knew it. But as I was reading, I was like, yeah, I know this one. And when you um, look at it, it is it is pretty perfect. Like, not that it's the best poem in here, but, like, the structure is perfect. Like, um, everything metrical, everything sure you rhymed. Should I forget someone the sum could tell? This and my heart and all the bees which in the clover dwell. Right. You know, um, N- not the most interesting in terms of subject matter that she's talking about, but like you said, I think it's pretty perfect. Like, yeah, you can always s- go deeper. Um, and it's a and it's small. It's getting to that small size, right? They, they we're starting these to see these really small. the clover dwell, you know. Um, well, and just like the you know the first couple of poems, they were a little bit longer, and she kind of wavered between a couple stanzas and then a single stanza type poems. But like this one, we're starting to see single stanza poems. We're starting to see little tiny, almost nursery rhyme things, and that's why again they strike me as a little bit of practice. But then they're not bad poems right like these are technically kind of perfect poems and they're just little ones uh so 26 number 28 i think is another one that's like these are all ones that i think listeners if you're listening ones to commit to memory uh just because little things that you could use throughout the day right 28 so has a daisy vanished from the fields today so tiptoed many a slipper to paradise away ooze so in crimson bubbles days departing tide blooming tripping flowing are ye then with god oh yeah just just (laughs) um yeah she does some funny stuff when she talks about god in the early poems yeah and vendler's obsessed with that and i I mean for good reason because clearly you know she was raised in the 19th century you know very christian upper class she was probably force-fed the bible as you know having to read it every day at dinner or whatever around the table or something. Uh, that kind of Massachusetts Puritanism still baked into the cake, right, at, uh, at this time, even though it's like, you know, a couple hundred years after. But yeah, and then there's a lot of scholars talk about her kind of, she was one of the big bold things she did at the time um, was reject the kind of Christian authority that was everywhere, right? Like, like, uh, and this has become a, this was a theme in art all through kind of the, the, the 19th century and into the 20th century when when Christianity was really kind of dominant in cultural stuff. And, and people were a little bit like, eh, come on, you know, like a lot of the baby boomer art in the 60s and stuff like this, like is very, you know, anti-Christian. And, because, again, they were that was an oppressive force at the time, much more oppressive than, we, than it, what we deal with now, you know. Well, and um, I remember my parents telling me God, stories that like, you couldn't disrespect the cloth. Her, like if you was. disrespected the cloth, like, but when she you were was at Holyoke, that, you know. I think you know there. I think there was maybe a disappointment that she was for in her that she could not believe. Yeah, you know, that she was not a believer, um, or right. that she struggled to be, uh, and, and so. Um, I mean, it is hard to have blind faith in things, right? Like, Yeah, but there was it, not just that it was hard, but that she, I think, s- felt like she was, like, 
left out of something in some way um, and is constantly sort of searching for a way. Um, I think a lot of writers, I think some of the best writers have that internal struggle of, you know, if you feel comfortable in like a little group or a click, like, you know, you're not going to write as good as stuff as if you're always constantly uncomfortable and you can't really find a click. You don't know where you really quite fit in. I think that's where we get some of the best stuff in art is where these people are, don't quite fit in with all this other stuff, but, um, I didn't mark another one until 33. Do you want to hit it? If recollecting were forgetting, then I remember not. And if forgetting recollecting how near I had forgot. And if to miss were merry and to mourn were gay, how very blithe the fingers that gathered this today. Um, that one just feels very much like a playfulness with language that I think is very much still Dickinson, but like a really early um, attempt at that kind of playfulness and language. If recollecting were forgetting, then I remember not. Yeah. yeah, and all of these, these last couple that we just hit are all composed, estimated to be composed around 1858. So, again, we're saying that, like, you know, structurally these poems are there, the stylistically they're there, but they're not quite as good as the bangers that we'd learn about in school and stuff like that, right? But, like, you know, I, I always stress, you know, it has to be written. Like, you have to write these little practice poems, you have to write these little things to get to those masterpieces they're not just going to happen you know yeah i uh, mean i think this one is uh, maybe kind of hard to just say precisely what she's saying but you know we have if recollecting we're forgetting then i remember not so as if like you know literally if we were to switch these things well i remember not and that's a recollection right i don't remember this thing that happened um and if forgetting is recollecting, I'm adding the word is here, right? Uh, how near I had forgot, right? Because when you recollect, oh God, I should have written down my original formulation. It took me a while to parse this out. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're remembering, it's like, oh, how nearly I had forgotten it, right? But, like, you can see it, right? Like, you can see sort of she's just playing with the ideas of forgetting and remembering. Yeah. It doesn't feel quite perfect. And, and she's almost, also just playing with, like, oppositions, right? Like, it, um, you know, mournfulness and, you know, to be gay, right? To be happy. Yeah. Um, but as something, like, you cannot forget something without having memory right and you can't be mournful if there's no such thing as like the opposite of mournfulness so and that's something that's a dynamic that we see throughout a lot of these tend to point me toward um the zeros tautus phosphorus right or um what's that a later poem the zeros uh -oh. tautus phosphorus um i don't remember what number it is We'll get to it. We don't have to. Uh... Yeah, but that's one where it's like she's playing <coughs> with um, those sort of oppositions, right? Cold taught us warmth, right? You learn cold from, you know, she's sort of playing with the idea that um, that's really kind of simple if you think about it. Like, oh, yeah, you know that, like, the idea that um, you can only be happy because there's such thing as sadness, right? 
that's the central idea I think that she plays with in a lot of these sort of wordplay um, poems. She, I think, I mean, dials it in more in a poem like the Zero's Taurus Phosphorus. But like even that, like I think, <clears throat> you know, we should talk about this. Like Dickinson's a lyric poet, right? Like we would say. Yeah, I suppose. And when we, when we I mean very formal. I, I don't know. Well, I just mean in not term- exclusively, but sure. Yeah, but I, I just mean in terms of like this idea of this get back to kind of like our color episode listeners can go back and listen to that like with this idea of lyric not having to make a kind of narrative sense right but what we get out of it is the music the appreciation i think there's a lot to emily dickinson's rhythm that just hits me in a sweet spot it's almost like pop music or something you know it just hits you in that kind of nursery rhyme way where and I'm not saying her poems are nursery rhymes, you know. I'm just saying it hits you in that kind of same way when you're a child and you hear these pleasing, goofy rhymes, you know, like in a nursery rhyme type thing. And it just kind of is like a pleasing little, yeah. And sometimes she is experimenting with this kind of telling a story. She's using a lot of imagery and things like that, and we can read into it, right? We can interpret. But I just, yeah, I was thinking about that as I was reading through this. If we call these lyric you know, uh, what is it about Dickinson that we're like, oh, I'm just, and I was just thinking about, yeah, like I'm drawn to her because of this kind of perfect little rhymed meter that she does and how uniquely it's her. So like nobody else can do this meter without sounding like Emily Dickinson. Nobody else can copy this now without everybody being like, oh, you're just copying Dickinson. Like, because it's so original at the time. It was so good. Even if it wasn't super original, she made it her own, right? Like, yeah, she but, made and we it all know, own. like, I mean, every time I, I read Dickinson, that's what happens, right? I can feel that I'm just copying Dickinson. Right. You want to, because it's so <laughs> pleasing. Yeah. Um, and it it's is really pleasing, pleasing to the ear. And it becomes really easy to fall into a similar formula. Um, and then it's frustrating, right? Because it's hard to make it your own. It's really hard to take someone like Dickinson and what who really is, I think, um, you know, the, the person that I think of in who historically, you know, had this many poems that sounded like this, right? Um, but then in, say, like, you know, maybe 10 poems later, poem 43, we see like a strangeness with rhythm. And she gets playful with rhythm in places. This is a place where I feel like it didn't quite feel as smooth, but I still liked the poem. Um, It reminds me of other places where I felt like her rhythm was a little bit different. um, But still, like, this one makes me think of um, We Dream It Is Good We Are Dreaming. It Would Kill Us Where We Awake. That's another later one. Um, But 43 is Could Live did live, could die, did die, could smile upon the whole through faith in one he met not to introduce his soul, could go from scene familiar to an untraversed spot. So you want to add like a little, you want to add stresses in weird places. So this is also something that she does. Um, Could contemplate the journey with an unpuzzled heart. Such trust had one among us, among us not today. We who saw the launching never sailed the bay. Uh, I marked this one mostly for rhythm, but this, again, feels like, you know, a poem about faith, right? 
playing with the idea of faith um, through faith in one he met not, right? Um, such trust had one among us, among us not today. We who saw the launching never sailed the bay. So, you know, um, I, I automatically go to God here, right? Faith in God as one who is not here. It's just sort of blind faith. We who saw the launching never sailed the bay. Um, is there something in particular that you make of those lines? Um, I think it, it's, I think you're right in terms of, I guess we could argue faith in terms of this, but yeah. Who, I we was who saw trying the launching to pin down we who saw the launching, <coughs> right? The launching of a, a ship, I assume. Right? Yeah. Never sailed the bay. Um, the only type of launching sort I think of there would be. Belief in something then. that you haven't done, but like yeah. also that's You've something never that you can believe, right? Like that's something you, but you can see. Well, I guess she's never seen. We who saw the launching, if it's the launching of a ship into the sea, which is like kind of a weird word. That's why like I'm hesitant. But either way. Um, I think it's a fun poem. I think it's an interesting one that kind of shows how she does play with rhythm. It isn't always that, uh, it, it isn't always as formulaic as it feels, right? Um, elsewhere. And so you do have these pretty tight little um, poems where it feels very much like it's sticking to a meter. It's sticking to mostly a hard rhyme. Then you have moments like this where it, the, the tone is almost straight, like it's a little bit funny. Could live, did live could die did die you know like it almost feels funny yeah uh playing with the idea of could versus did right um the idea of belief could li could it could one live did they live you know um and how changing that phrase suggests a certain amount of faith in something having happened yeah Right. Uh, I just think that's a fun little playful one. I marked poems 47 through 50. I do not know why I, at this point I think I was reading in the dark. Let's see. Um, yeah, uh, this is like where we are. Yeah, we're getting into God and death a lot here. There aren't any poems, I think, in that chunk that i really cared that much for yeah i didn't mark many until i went through like uh page 70 71 uh poem number 150 i marked that one but i marked that as like an example of okay we're moving from 1858 to 1859 and we're seeing the refinement kind of thing happen you know as you're reading through this collection looking for yeah i feel like <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot here. Um, what number did you say that you marked? I marked 150. Mm -hmm. At least for me, reading through this all at once, I did this in chunks, listeners, because, again, like Sophie said, 
when you're reading kind of on the same things, you, the same themes over and over again, you can get a little bogged down by it. So I did break this up into like 50 page chunks, about the size of a poetry book, right? For each one. At least I tried to do as we cut into the first 200 yeah. pages here. Oh, yeah. And I just noticed as during my second sitting, you know, reading the next 50 pages here as we moved in from, you know, 1858 to 1859. To me, there was nothing like particularly special about it other than that's the poem where I started to be like, oh, okay, I'm seeing it. You know what I mean? as I was reading through, but I didn't know if you had anything around there or around like that 1859 as we move through. Cause I have another one around that same time, although it looks like it moved right into 160 or 1860 here. Cause I liked 165 too. Cause right around there, we have faith as a fine invention. What number? That one was one. That's 185. So let's go a little bit before that, because I know I have ones before that. Yeah, we have 165, a wounded deer leaps highest. Yeah, and this was one I pointed out because it was one that I thought kind of shows. What did I write down here? Uh, I wrote down like, yeah, a good example of a poem starting off very strongly as all of her stuff does. She has a lot of first line bangers and then I think kind of crumbles in on itself. At least that was me reading through it here. See what we think as we reread it together. Uh, but it struck me as a little bit as like, and as some of these, as we already pointed out, feel like practice poems, feel like unfinished. Maybe it was just little practice verses that she was writing down, etc. Uh, a wounded deer leaps highest. I've heard the hunter tell. Tis but the ecstasy of death, and then the break is still. The smitten rock that gushes, the trampled steel that springs. A cheek is always redder, just where the hectic just where the hectic stings. Mirth is the mail of anguish, in which it's in which it in which it cautious arm, lest lest anybody spy the blood, and you're hurt. Exclaim. Yeah. So what doesn't work for you here? For me, the shift from that one stanza here where we have three stanzas, it looks like, although I guess that's a page change, so I can't yeah. necessarily Swear tell. The stings. Mirth Those... is the male of anguish. That felt like the summing up of this poem to me. Mirth is the male of anguish. And it's that third stanza is where I male, think... M-A-I-L, just for reference. And that little bit of change up there between the first two stanzas and the last stanza is where I thought it started to weaken when I and first read this. But, I mean, what do you think? I think this is a pretty solid one. Um, a wounded deer leaps highest, I've heard the hunter tell. Tis but the ecstasy of death. And then the break is still. Um, just playing with the it seems like sort of an interplay between the greatest life and the greatest sort of violence of life right uh, or of you know between death and life right the smitten rock that gushes i'm not sure of that one that line i don't quite understand the trampled steel that springs a cheek is always redder just where the hectic stings well the smitten rock that gushes I think could be Bible reference you know yeah tapping the rock to get the water that Bible oh, story oh fuck I don't know that you know I, this is yeah. what I rely on you for 
Um, I, I will say this to listeners. If you don't lot, know the Christian four, myths, like, yeah. it, if you don't, knowing it them makes helps. it harder. Yeah, it makes reading, reading <laughs> Western literature harder. for yeah. not knowing them. Um, but I thought those last four lines were tight. And I thought um, the first four lines were tight. And I agree that mi- those middle four, maybe not so much. I am guessing this is a three stanza poem. That's what it looks um, like it is. I just didn't want to assume because there's that page split that trains. maybe that, but it looks like it's so even with the four lines, yeah, that it has to yeah, be a third, I, I mean, a third stanza. To me, it just second, got a little bit jumbled there, but then reading it the again. The second is like, meh, but I, I still think it's solid, right? Like, I still think this is, um, I think that's more solid than a poem that maybe, um, is really clear but is kind of boring and again this one reminds me a lot of something that she does later really well water is taught by thirst right so the later poems the zeros taught as phosphorus um where she starts to play with the language there instead of just saying water taught us thirst um you know Instead of saying the cold taught us warmth, she says the zeros taught us phosphorus. And that's where she sort of gets really playful with language later on in her life. Um, and, and I think we start to see more and more of that as we go on. Um, but yeah. And this is when we're moving into 1860 here. Yeah. So just more refinement, more kind of finding that formula that we know to be hers. Then you, you said you moved, marked something around here. I marked 187. What uh, I want to say, maybe marked like one. Oh, you did faith is a fine invention. I mean, I marked that just because that one was like an obvious little banger, really short one. If you don't know it, read it. I mean, I think that's just a a good example of sort of just how like she can be kind of funny, right? This and it, you know, this was eighteen sixty two. So you think about what was happening in 1860, right? We were starting to get the first kind of real hard sciences kind of yeah, and you see that she's really pushing back against the faith. So if you were educated upper class at that time, you were understanding and getting articles, you know, on the Atlantic and things like that uh, with the latest science developments and things. But you were also still kind of, you know, preoccupied with the faith the kind of christian story and all of that so it was this kind of time where that was you know we re- we talked about this when we did keats this kind of that the romantics were big on this in the early part of that um of the 19th century there but you know just yeah it's a good little one that just you know it's another good one you could memorize yeah it's easy one to memorize right faith is a fine invention for gentle or when gentlemen can see i always want to say for gentlemen who see I wonder if there's like another copy of this poem in a Norton or something. Faith is a fine invention when gentlemen can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. You know, it's just yeah. a fun little little playful one. I don't think we need to pick that one apart. And 187 on the next page, 88 there, was one where I thought that this, it just was a good example of her M dashes starting to get this kind of pacing and punctuation use. Mm-hmm. Like I think in 187, it's almost all M dashes apart from the final exclamation point in terms of punctuation, and it was just a good example of that I thought. Yeah. Do you want to talk about it? 
I mean, not more than I, that, just yeah, in terms of how she... on that one. How many times these low feet staggered? I think Vendler has this one. Yeah, only the, sold, uh, only the soldered math can tell. Uh, try, can you stir the awful rivet? Try, can you lift the hasps of steel? Stroke the cool forehead, hot so often. Lift, if you care, the listless hair. Handle the adamantine fingers. Never a thimble, more shall wear. Buzz the dull flies on the chamber window. Brave, shines the sun through the freckled pane. Fearless, the cobweb swings from the ceiling. Indolent housewife in daisies lane. And this, when you hear me pause in that, listeners, this is where the M dashes were. And she has them at the end of the line, but then they're very in the line, too, where she has these isolated words, try, try, in the first stanza. And then, you know, brave in that last stanza, lift, like these kinds of, uh, you know. Yeah, this reminds me of another later famous poem. Right, well, that's what I mean. We see this happening now. This is 1860. Yeah, and then that later stuff. I hear an echo of that poem in this earlier one. So I think maybe that's the most interesting thing to me um, about reading her collected work is that in these early poems, you do see like um, the beginnings of something that emerges later. I feel like a broken record saying this, but that's one of the things that really becomes exciting about really knowing any poet is sort of watching their evolution from uh, the beginnings of those ideas sort of planting little seeds and then sort of years and years later maybe um, becoming just a more um, complex and tight and interesting poem from something that maybe was a little bit less interesting or maybe not less interesting but like not as popular and technically interesting like technically kind of this kind of experimentation with these m dashes to pace out the reading and this is something we complain about a lot on this podcast we see in contemporary poetry is that there's very little attention paid to how you want the reader to read the poem right it's just they haphazardly smash this kind of phrase into the page and break it arbitrarily into lines and things like that and stanzas where they're not taking advantage of all the tools in the toolbox here, like Mm -hmm. Dickinson is, where this kind of using the punctuation to guide the reader through the rhythm kind of thing, how you want it to be read, how you want things to be emphasized. And it's just something that is neglected in contemporary poetry, and you see Dickinson so good at it here. There was a section in the 1860 poems, as we're going through them here, with... uh, Page 100 and page 102, uh, it was poem 216, and uh, I marked poem 222. And the reason I marked 216 on page 100 is because that's one of the few in this book up until now that we get two versions of. We get an 1859 Uh, version and an 1861. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is one of the ones she sent, right, to Higginson. So... There and are one these of these two... is the version that we know, right? And it's the second yeah. one. Um, yeah. And I think there's good reason for that. Uh, the first one is the one that I Higginson think... edited, it looks like, in 1862. The first one? Yeah. I mean... said that was first published in 1862, oh, and then the okay. second version was published in 1890 in that collection that her you know, niece or grandniece or whatever put out. Uh, but I would say... Um, the two versions are really different, really different. Like, not just a few changes. It's like a whole right. difference of stanza. Like, the whole 
second stanza is entirely different and entirely different tonally. And this is why I got so pissed off about that road doll shit, dude, is that these fucking people, these fucking editors get their greedy little hands off of these fucking works of art. Just stop. Just stop trying to fuck with it. You're not going to make it better. You're not going to make it more appealing to people. Like, you are ruining it if you try to keep adding your thoughts on what should be done to an artist's work. It's incredible arrogance. It's incredible. I, 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 and this Higginson should be rightly taken to task for what he did on this stuff, so... There's that. I don't know if you wanted to spend too much time talking about it, but I thought that was interesting how we got the two versions that we could see. Yeah, I and just clearly wanna... Dickinson's original version is superior. And this is what I mean. So this guy, Higginson, who the fuck is he? The only reason we know him is because what? Because he fucking fucked up Emily Dickinson's poems, you know. He didn't do shit. Like Yeah, uh, um but I think also her second um version right with the other second stanza so you probably know uh, safe in their alabaster chambers untouched by morning and untouched by noon sleep this sleep the meek members of the resurrection rafter of satin and roof of stone that's mostly the same as the second one that just says lies the meek members instead of sleep um but this second stanza is really different. Light laughs the breeze in her castle above them, babbles the bee in a stolid ear, pipe the sweet birds in ignorant cadence. Ah, what sagacity perished here. It's really, really different tonally from grand go the years in the crescent above them. Worlds scoop their arcs and firmaments. Row. Row? row I think row. Yeah. Diadems drop, and doges surrender, soundless as dots on a disk of snow. Um, quieter, but also sort of more muscular feeling to me, um, and more serious. Less um, the the first version felt. I don't know. Like it, it maybe was trying to be playful or like funny or I don't know. Like it, it was, but the second version feels like more serious. Like it's going larger. I mean, grand go the years is a great line in a way to talk about how the world sort of moves on without, without you after death. Yeah. And then I did number 222 because that was just out of the regular form that she had been writing in, especially as we move into 1860, 1861 here. Really different. And this one actually has a question mark by the date of 1861, so I guess that's just a rough estimate. And this one is so different, it resembles some of the earlier style more so than what she was kind of working herself up to at this point. So I just thought it was unusual. Like she was just kind of trying it out, or maybe it was one that just got scattered in there. And it really isn't that good, you know, but just didn't know what we thought of that. I mean, I think it's just like her being playful about like a girl <laughs> that she knows and is maybe being pursued by two people. 
or maybe I'm reading it too literally. I don't know. No, I mean, I think that could be it. That's what I mean. It's just, it's just the style of it and the way it's laid out on the page is so different. From, it's really yeah, different. It's I I mean, rhythmically different. When Katie walks, the simple pair accompany her side. When Katie runs unwearied, they follow on the road. When Katie kneels, their loving hands still clasp her pious knee. Ah, Katie, smile at fortune with two so knit to thee. It actually, it's sort of similar. It's really, it really, um, as I read it out loud, does feel very similar to her other poems, but it does look very different on the page. The lines are longer. It's only four lines. Um, she has other poems that are four lines, but are much, much briefer. <laughs> right? I got to pee real quick. All right, I'll pee too. It was around page 104 that I started to see this kind of use of the M dashes really explode yeah. almost too much. Uh, <coughs> she gets excited. And pretty much from poem like 224 to poem 230, it's just kind of this endless kind of overuse of M dashes. But this is again moving into 1861, but you can see how she's, she's not using them, uh, when I say that they're overused, it it's clear she's not using them just too like you know haphazardly. She's playing with it. I think it's very obvious. You can tell she's experimenting with what these dashes can actually do on the page with a poem, and I just thought that was great. You know, we don't have to go into all of those, but uh, just a little something to keep in mind here. And then I marked... Oh, yeah, they really explode here. Yeah, uh. 235 is pretty egregious, and um, even 232, 230... I thought, I thought 234 was all right, though. I thought it was kind of funny. Well, yeah, I mean, they're not bad. Um, I just mean, like, in terms of the use of the... Like, that was... All <laughs> I thought it was really funny to see the phrase, I guess, yeah. <laughs> in a Dickinson poem, uh, so that one made me laugh. I actually sent that one to a few people. You're right. The way is narrow. And that's in quotes. And I think I had to look this up. This is some Jesus shit that I don't know about. And difficult the gate. And few there be, correct again, that enter in thereat. Tis costly, so are purples. Tis just the price of breath. With but the discount of the grave, termed by the broker's death. And after that, there's heaven, the good man's dividend. And bad men go to jail, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that's just funny, right? Like, that's just her being funny. Yeah. Um, and, like, responding to what I think is maybe, like, a Jesus speech, supposedly. Um, check me on that. I don't know about Jesus, so if you know about Jesus, uh, lay it on me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that was a really funny way to respond to an idea of like heaven and hell and end with, I guess, you know, I don't know. Sure. Uh. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, and it's not something that I expect to see even in Emily Dickinson, who is very playful. Um, of course, 241, real banger. I like a look of agony. And, and that one's really tight, right? I like a look of agony because I know it's true. Men do not sham convulsion nor simulate a throw. The eyes glaze once, and that is death, impossible to feign. 
the beads upon the forehead of homely anguish strung. And that one is easy to memorize. Strongly recommend it. And like kind of fucked up. I like a look of agony because I know it's true. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, pretty dark. I think that's what people, that's why we still, people are attracted to Dickinson in the, in yeah, the same way I they're mean, attracted to a lot of the big writers that we've covered on this pod so far. I mean, I'm sure there, you know, we all know there's many more that we haven't covered, but yeah, I think that's what it is. Is because, you know, she always talks about the truth. There's that famous quote of hers, right? The truth is so rare. It's delightful to tell it. And, you know. Ugh, what a line. And that's the thing. Like, she's a poet that while I think often in contemporary poetry, we will be really quick to say, um, you can't speak in abstraction, right? Like, you have to earn that right. Like, you can't just write beauty. Um, and you can't just write uh, anguish, right? You have to earn those words. And I think with Emily Dickinson, she kind of shows us, well, that might not really be true, right? You can be good at it. Um, and I think that's the other thing that attracts us to her is that she's unafraid to hit these big things. Well, we say unafraid, but really we don't know. Like she's just writing uh -huh. in the in the terms she knows, right? Um, and I think she does it really well. And I think it's that she talks about such big things in such large terms. I like a look of agony. She's not referring to a specific look. She's not referring to a specific instance. She's not just describing it. She does at the end, right? The beads upon the forehead of homely anguish strung. She's giving us an image of like sweating. Right? I think she does it really well, but she starts with the abstraction. I think that's something that she does a lot. Um, that in a contemporary poetry workshop, we would maybe not welcome so readily. And so I think that's really interesting. I think that's a really good tight little poem. And of course everyone does. It's one of one that's really very canonized, right? You see it in all the anthologies. So it's a good one. And on page Certainly one of my favorites. Yeah, on page one twenty three, number two seventy, uh that was the one where again as I was reading through here uh, you know, fifty page chunks, it was like I was like, Oh yeah, this is everything we love about Dickinson working and Oh yeah, I marked that one too. Yeah. And also even I think there are a couple I marked before that. Yeah, because this There's is where a we're getting it of in. light. Yeah. You know, that's where you're starting to hit like a banger every few poems you get. There's a certain slant of light on winter afternoons. So added a word there by accident, but you know the one. Yeah, Sophie and I were texting um, about this too. We're like, when you reach that point here, and it's right around the 1861. You know, 100 pages into this or so, we get, <clears throat> we we start to see, her voice be fully fully realized in this kind of full-throated you know oh uh, yeah way that is very distinct and very emily dickinson and it's just wonderful to be able to go back and read a book like this from the very beginning those little scraps that she probably had no desire to ever publish you know those little scraps <clears throat> that were we were talking about and then see something like this, you know, number 270 on page 123, just and a lot that perfect. feel like really quintessential yeah, Dickinson yeah. openings too. a single screw of flesh is all that pins the soul is how 263 starts. And then 264, 
await with needles on the pounds to push and pierce besides. I mean, these feel very quintessential uh, Dickinson in terms of their syntax and the way that um, she's maybe getting a little bit more specific, maybe a little bit less like um, where the same way that I used, you know, I don't remember what she says. We learn cold from blah, blah, blah. Or like we learn something from something. And it seemed really basic early on. And maybe like a really early formulation of something like the zeros taught us phosphorus, which was a playful way to say the cold teaches us heat. Yeah. And just, you know, yeah. so 270, the reason, and again, Sophie's pointed out like these couple poems before it and then even poems after it and even the, the most exciting part about reading this book is that even if we're right here on page 123 of, you know, a 700 plus page book of all of Dickinson's work, uh, it just gets better from here. You know, like it just keeps getting more exciting, more perfect, more in tune, like more unique, more individually, uniquely hers kind of thing. And I just, you know, all the M dashes are working in this one. This one is there's quite a bit of M dashes, but they're not overused. Like in those poems I pointed out around page, you know, 100, 102, around there where there's a, you could tell her experimenting more with the M dashes, but it wasn't quite working as well as it's working in these last couple, like Sophie pointed out, you know, 264, 263, 270, like this section of 1861 compositions where we're starting to see, oh yeah. And this is around the time, right, when she is sending off letters to Higginson's, right? Like, like to try and see, am I any good, right? Am I good enough to get published in these magazines where the other poets are getting published kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And you can well, see and it. Even she then, felt it that confidence. Like... You can read it in these works. And it's just a great thing to be able to go back and read it uncensored, by the way, well, <laughs> in these works. Yeah. Supposedly there was a period of her life and her correspondence uh, with um, uh, Higginson. I don't remember what I had noted. Let me look really quickly. But there was like a period of time during which it is believed that she pretty much accepted, at least from, I guess, scholars who read her letters, um, where she really accepted that she would not be a very published poet in her lifetime. Um, Interesting. So she, like, wrote about that, like, in her letters? Um, yeah. Between April and June of their correspondence. Was that... And that was 62, 61? Um... She seems to have accepted she would not yeah. gain a reputation during her lifetime. Sorry, I was I was I jumped the gun. It was sixty two when she contacted Higginson for the first yeah, time. So, so we're a little before um, that, but you know, it's getting there. Yeah. What were you saying? Yeah, Sorry. so yeah, I mean I just think that's interesting, right? Like it's not just am I good enough to be published? It was, like right when she wrote to him initially, she wanted to know if her poems breathe, if they were true. Right. In her words. Right. Yeah. Um, if this if what she was doing was not just in a publishable way, but like was. Could be legitimate in some like larger, truer sense of that word right beyond. I think her concern was not just to publish, but like uh, she wanted the art to be true. Right. Whatever you want sort of wanted to take that to mean. Um, was there life in them? Right. More than could I publish this? Which might, you might I mean, argue are like kind of the same, you know? Dude, you and, and, you fine, and I, like, we talk about this, like, 
you know, when you, you've mentioned this a few times, and I know not just on this podcast, but just you and me giving, you know, poems back and forth, works back and forth, you know, this, is it true? And I, 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 I'm interested in this idea because we hear people say this. We hear people say this about fiction writing and poetry. Like, oh, it's honest, right? Or, oh, it's, and what do they mean yeah, by what, that? What yeah. the fuck does that actually mean? Do they mean, mean it's like it? true, right? And like, and then, then we go, okay, well, what is true, right? Like this kind of, and I don't want to get into yeah, like a Yeah, and whole, I don't think honest yeah. and true are the same at all. And I don't think anyone would really disagree with me there, right? Those Like you can be honest without saying something true, right? Like I you don't, can be You can say something that you honestly believe without it being like well, true. Yeah. Right? We see that all the time. Sure. So I think there's some difference there, not that they're like... <clears throat> what would you... Uh, but, oh, I guess you let's, know, just, let's just focus on truth. What do we think? Yeah, you know, true. like, I mean... I, what, I mean what does she I mean? Think, what do we think we mean? You know, we're not going to get to the bottom, but just talk. I don't yeah. think she means, like, that these poems are saying things that are true, but necessarily as much as um, are they... Is there enough force in them to like you know in in the words of our teacher lift off the page right like to sort of take on a life of their own do they feel like real poems do they feel like legitimate literature feel yeah um feel that i think that's the most important yeah sorry go on yeah i mean like um i think i heard someone say like could is what i'm doing a legitimate way of doing poetry basically is what there was. I don't remember who it was, but it was someone in one of the documentaries I watched. Um, I'd be curious to see other interpretations of that too, because I'm not particularly nailed down to one, right? I don't really actually know enough. I'd love to read more of her letters and sort of maybe get a sense of that or read that initial letter for myself again. And Um, I like that you said how it feels because we talk about this all the time on this podcast. We're going to keep talking about it because this is, you know, a big thing. And this is part of what makes talking about art so much fun is that what we're mostly talking about is our reaction to a piece of right. art, right? And this feeling of, you know, that kind of, it's hard to explain. And this is why I get so kind of hazy well, and there's all kinds of arguments and stuff and people I get think- upset. But it's like, there is this, like, you're feeling some type of transference from the author who composed these words together on the page to yourself kind of thing. And we don't really know what to call that. You know what I mean? And well, w- without... Emily Dickinson would have called it as feeling as though the top of her head was taken right off. Or, right? or as you said, feel true, right? Or feel right. like this kind of... And feel true, again, is different from is true, right? Like, yeah, I yeah. Mean, we're not talking fact-checking. From... Yeah, we're talking... Right. And the... I'm... Yeah rarely concerned with that in poems and that's actually Dude, i'm not even concerned makes... with it in fiction poetry right, i don't give a fuck also, about fact i think checking. one yeah, of the like, things yeah. that makes poetry very interesting because it is a place where we have a tendency to make these giant lofty claims in the absence of a clear fictional character onto whom we can like put that belief right we could say oh well that's not mine it's you know the speaker right that's there and we say it but we are more inclined i think typically to analyze and say like oh there's you know we're supposed to like there's a sense i think more with poetry more immediately and maybe also true of like the literary novel that it gets at some like big question about life right um whether or not it tells you what the correct thing to think is is a wholly other question yeah 
Um, and even that necessarily, I think, is is putting a little too much kind of, you know, like in terms of what the true, how it feels true or something. Like it is just kind of this reaction to right. when you read something. And sometimes it's like it's the reaction that happens before understanding. And, and very yeah, often. yeah. And that, that's important, too. Yeah. I want to eventually, I don't want to talk about books I haven't written yet, but I want to write a book on this eventually, a nonfiction kind of that thing, that feeling, that thing that you're feeling right there and why it's so important, why it's it's so hard to talk about. It is really hard to talk about and it's really hard to pinpoint. And I think there are a lot of, you know, different ways that you could go about it, whether that's like. Uh, and we've you know. talked about that. We talked about it probably most in depth on our <clears throat> bonus episode where we got a lot of writing questions from listeners. So again, listeners, if you want to hear that, you got to subscribe. Patreon.com slash heavy board where we go into, you know, we don't get an answer. We don't know the answer. But Sophie and I go into a little bit more depth where it gets complicated between the objective kind of form and structure of writing and the art forms. But then there's something else that we call the subjectiveness of art where it's like, how you feel, how you react to a piece of art kind of determines what we call the subjective thing, right? Uh, Mm. You know, so it's a combination of those two things, which is what makes this so kind of complicated and a little sticky when you start getting into nitpicking and you have little slight differences of opinion. That's what things like this podcast are for. I mean, I think that's, you know, our listeners are smart people. They they want to explore these ideas just like we do kind of thing. But yeah, I thought that was good on page two. So I'm almost done here. I mean, we're almost to the end of this first section here. So if he's running out of time, uh, what else did I there mark? Are, what there I, yeah, are what else a lot did you other mark? Ones yeah. that I really like. I mean, I felt a again, fear on my brain. I, I guess I just I'm. I think I'm obsessed maybe with the zeros toss phosphorus. Maybe it's one of the first ones that I got really into because I marked every poem that sounds exactly like it, <sighs> which has taught me poverty, myself a millionaire. Like you know, it just it has that same kind of formula. Uh, in that first line so I think I just marked them all but you know I mean in the same sort of span of poems we have also the soul selects her own society I mean you probably have heard that one if you've heard any amount of Dickinson Um, and while it's one that we know well this is one of the places where I feel her getting quieter um, and more restrained yeah, I was going to say, what do you mean by quiet? Explain it for um, Like, there's more white space in between. Like, the, the distance that you're... The lines are a little bit shorter, but the M dashes are more creating that sort of pause. The soul selects her own society, then shuts the door to her divine majesty. <clears throat> present no more. Um, so like while the lines are pretty short, those M dashes tend to elongate and the rhythm, because you're, I think you're trying to find the right places for that rhythm to hit. It does sort of slow you down a little bit instead of speed you up. There are rhythms that will speed you up, right? This isn't one of them. Right. And then it's uh, instructing it's the, the reader. Yeah. Of, yeah. And that's part of the magic, I think, of her punctuation, um, yeah, even unmoved, she notes the chariots pausing at her low gate, right? Like, even with at her low gate being its own line, you don't want to read it quickly because you're trying to hit that rhythm a little bit, right? At her low gate, right? Though your brain just wants to do that. Your ear wants to do that. 
um, you will start hearing yourself speaking in meter on occasion as you start to read these poems, especially if you read them out loud. Uh, but, you know, I just think that's a really, um, a really good one. I mean, obviously we know it's a good one, but, you know, it's one that I think is a good contrast <coughs> to um, louder ones. Like, we dream, it is good, we are dreaming. It would kill us where we awake. We dream, it is good, we are dreaming. It would kill us where we awake. And there's like a lot of, uh, there's a lot of exclamation in that one. And the lines are a little bit longer and the rhythm is really loud, though not maybe, though maybe different from the obvious <coughs> hymn, right? Um, that we hear in right. a lot of her poems. Well, let's, you want to hit 128, number 280. I felt a funeral in my brain. Oh, Another, God. yeah, I mean, who, oh, God. dude. This who is when we, this is when we start getting yeah. to the bangers. Like that's what we were saying. Like when when you reach this page, like right around page one fifty or so, like and it, even before then, right? We're on page one twenty eight here, but like you start to see, like you know, every po every other poem or every couple poems is like, oh shit, that's a banger. Oh shit, you know, like it just starts getting better and better as we go through here. And this was one I was like, oh yeah, here we go. I texted so I was like, oh here come the bangers, right? Like. And I thought this was just incredibly good poem. You know, this is everything we love about Dickinson working perfectly. And we are, you know, and we're starting to see the form take shape. And, and it's kind of, I wrote down, it's a thrill to what to see. Like I'm witnessing this history of this person's life. Like she put so much energy into this. And we're only 1861 here too. We're not even 200 pages in here. And it's like, she hasn't even contacted Higginson at this point, and the poems are just clicking. They're just fucking clicking. Oh, yeah. She hasn't even gotten workshop bullshit, feedback from morons sitting around a table, right? Like we always shit on here on this podcast, but it's like they're clicking, and it's just that practice, that constant practice, that constant doing it every day, reading your contemporaries, reading the greats, the canon, reading this stuff over and over um. again and working at it. And, you know, this is a comment, like, I felt a funeral in my brain, or I felt a cleaving in my mind, right? Like, I felt... Right, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, we hear a lot of that, or <coughs> after great pain, a formal feeling comes, right? We get that poem in here, too. Um, and the mourners to and fro kept treading, yeah, treading, till it seemed poems. that sense was breaking through. And when they all were seated, a service, like a drum, kept beating, beating, till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift a box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again, then space began to toll. As all the heavens were a bell, and being but an ear, and I, in silence, some strange race, wrecked solitary here. And then a plank in reason broke, and I dropped down and down, and hit a world at every plunge, and finished knowing then. Ugh. Just so fucking good. And this is one that Vendler points out a lot too, where she 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 started getting this habit of uh, not all not every poem, but this was around when she started getting in there, and even earlier than this, she started to do it with this kind of M dash ending the poem. You know, oh, yeah. and there's speculation about it. What does it do? Right. We have our thoughts. Uh, Venler argues that it's kind of a never ending continuation. Well, it, yeah, that's I mean, but I kind of see like where she's this... coming from with that. But it, yeah, yeah. Go on. Sorry. <sighs> I wish I had the words for it because it creates a feeling. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, um, and I don't know how to describe it. And it's not really. there for no reason, clearly. And, it, you know, and yeah. I think a sense of never endingness is maybe touching on it. Um, like, 
I, like the word ethereal creeps in, right? Like it, it's it, like a weird suspension. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's abrupt. Where, where particularly in this like, one, but it also feels like you're left in it while like the the poet kind of recedes. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but it creates this feeling of uh, grandness in a way that um, is maybe more solemn than you would have with a, with an exclamation point. Yeah. Cause she ends a lot of poems in exclamation. There's points. also like an yeah. uneasiness. Right. And this idea I, of funerals, but, death is at the end. You could argue in that kind of metaphorical context, but structurally. Well, and also finished knowing then and ending that statement with an M dash. It feels unfinished. Right. Like, right. Yeah. It um, it definitely creates a feeling, and it's really hard for me to describe what that feeling, what um, is like, what sense it is that the poem creates when it does that. Yeah. Like it creates an extra beat of like a sense of silence that's still within the poem, but I, yeah, I don't know how to describe the feeling very well. Um, but maybe you guys can let me know. Yeah, we also have I'm Nobody, Who Are You? I mean, uh, uh, After a Great Pain, <clears throat> a formal feeling comes, right? That's a great one. Yeah, and as we I get mean, into... We're, we're going to get all the great ones here, you know. I, I'll tell you how the sun rose. Um which is like a really, to me, that first line is funny and like aggressive and like uh, playing in the tradition of the Obad, right? An address to the sun, except it's not an address to the sun. It's like about, you know, it's about the sun coming up. I'll tell you how the sun rose. <laughs> like, it's just funny. Um, <coughs> and it feels like a funny statement. Yeah, and then we get into this kind of, like I said, right around page 150, and this is when we start to merge into 1862. So her most productive year, but if we're going by those little um, packets that were laid out in the intro. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, 1862, she had a packet of 320 or 366 poems in that little thing. And, and these are poems she did send to um, Higginson, right? Yeah, and they, some they of them. They sort of come in this short little um, burst, right? Because we get, we get those few poems, uh, many of those few poems, like within a few poems of each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is when we start to get, like, like we already talked about, like banger after banger type of thing. It starts to really click. And not everything all at once, but then when I got to page around, like, 191 is what I marked uh, into the 400s of her numbered poems here. I started to really pick up on this kind of, where did I mark it? Yeah, 401, you know, <clears throat> what soft cher cherubic creatures 
these mm-hmm. gentle women are like there i started to see okay this poem is great and then you know 402 403 are okay and then you get like 404 406 you know 410 411 412 like 413 like it just starts to become these bangers like i just couldn't and i like my excitement started growing i was like damn and this is where we're gonna you know we're gonna talk about this a little bit then we we keep going on next episode listeners but like yeah uh, the big ones, 412, 413, 401. Did you have any in that area? I mean, yeah, I circled all of them. I'm kind of, I guess, getting to the end of time here. I say we sort of just pick up on this section. Let's see. It looks like I have 412 and 413 circled. Oh, yeah. Those are really good. And this is getting to the end of those those first 200 pages that we blocked off, listeners, to kind of make this more manageable in podcast form. Uh, but yeah, and we're in 1862 again. We're we're she's contacting Higgins now, Higginson now. She's contacting, seeing if she's worth a damn kind of thing. And the poems are just getting better and better. My last question here before we sign off, uh, and we'll talk about this, I think in subsequent episodes coming up, but the, the whole, her not publishing during her lifetime thing, do we think that helped her or hurt her or both? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking of the edits and things that people put into her work after her death. I'm thinking of what the world was deprived of because she didn't really publish during her lifetime much. But we also know that she didn't completely hide her shit from the world, right? right? Like, she shared poems with other people, but, um, I mean, I think it probably mostly, it's impossible to say, but I think it probably mostly helped. I think that's probably what led to her staying as what who we think of as a really original poet because of the lack of outside um, external pressure, right? And saying, no, you should do this. And that even, in fact, when that did happen, when Higginson did say, no, let's change this and let's change this, she responded unkindly to that. And she said, fuck no, you're wrong, basically. Like, these are my poems. And that I think that, you know... It was such a, a spiritual and a private act for her. Uh, it was like sac- a, a sacred thing to her. And the idea that um, someone would change, would, would, you know, create change <laughs> in one of her poems as they were really actually bothered her, which is interesting to think about because she was looking for answer as to whether her poems again were true if they could breathe if uh, you know which um you know maybe puts us at odds with the idea that she didn't have an an outside influence right because like you know she probably did read she we know she read we know that she read other um probably other poets right she got the magazines there was a thing in vendors thing where yes she was and they might subscribe to the atlantic she was subscribing to the new yorker she was subscribing to these magazines that were publishing the hottest shit you know these old magazines that are a lot of them are still around right you know uh probably some european ones i'm sure she was i'm sure she could read french and latin and things like this 
<clears throat> a lot of educated upper class people could back then, even though, you know, not many can. But yeah, I would but. say, you know, we have the Dickinson we have because she didn't have much editorial influence. I think that, and I think it added some type of mystery to her. The fact mm-hmm. that it was all this stuff to be discovered and she was dead, so we couldn't ask her. And it created this kind of, you know, we romanticize great artists all the time. And I, I think there's a place for that. And, you know, you guys will hear me rail against it on this podcast when it's overdone. But, like, yeah, I think there there always is that kind of element of mystery to that that elevates an artist <clears throat> to that kind of level of immortality, right? You see this with Shakespeare, even, you know. We don't know a whole lot about his life. Uh, you know, records are hard to come by and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there's all that shit. But all right, you're, uh, you're out of time. Yeah, but I mean, that's a good place. I mean, we did two and a half hours yeah. here. Yeah, I say, you know, we pick up around there, so. All right. Reminder to listeners, we're still looking for workshop horror stories. If you or someone you knew had a terrible experience in a workshop, we'd like to hear about it in excruciating detail. Send that into heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a subscription plan to, uh, to subscribe and receive full uncensored episodes for subscribers only, including bonus episodes, extra segments, all that. Uh, go to patreon.com slash heavyboard to subscribe. If you don't want to do that, can't afford that, there are other ways to support us. You can support us on uh, <clears throat> you can support us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps us out, helps us grow. It's free. Or you could go to one of our YouTube channels, both of our YouTube channels, give us a like, a subscribe, share it with your friends and family. That helps us grow. And of course, we will have links to all the books that we, that we covered in the description. That includes the complete Dickinson poems and the Vendler we kept referencing. Uh, and next episode, we are continuing on our Dickinson deep dive. Emily Dickinson, Complete Poems, Part 2. This has been Heavy Board. See you. Heavy. Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.